everyone. Welcome to the In The Frame podcast. I'm Luke, this is Pip, and today we have... Uh, I'm Nev Pierce, I'm a filmmaker and journalist. Amazing. Nice to have you here, Nev. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Surviving. How about you? I'm good, yeah. And life's going well. Ticking over, doing bits and bobs. Yeah. How about you, Pip? Well, we're sharing. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, I live by the beach. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Just easy going. Pip's the easy, easy going one of us in this group. Uh, uh, yeah, Pip, over, yeah. So, look, Nev, thanks, thanks a lot for doing this. Obviously, we've known one another for a while. And uh, I, I was really keen to kind of um, kind of ask you the question about how, in terms of the filmmaking part, I know, obviously, you've been a journalist and we'll, we'll come on to that. But kind of for you, how what was the kind of the route into kind of starting to think of yourself as a filmmaker and starting to make things? I don't know at what point I thought that I could make films and, you know, watch the films and decide whether I can. But um, I know that when I got into film was when I was, you know, I watched a lot of movies growing up. I remember watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at school. A supply teacher showed it to us saying that we were mature enough. You know, we were not mature enough. Uh, but we loved them. I loved the movie and thought I have to get involved in that. And then became a journalist, uh, not expressly to become a filmmaker, but I became a film journalist. I don't know anybody in journalism or anyone in film so I guess it never occurred to me as being a thing that you could be which was a screenwriter or a director and then it was as the journalism went well over a few years I kind of realized thought oh well if these people are doing it and they are normal human beings then there's no reason why I can't give it a crack so you know that's how the idea came about anyway. How did you get your first sort of break into Obviously, people know you for Empire Magazine particularly, but, you know, how, how did you, that kind of come about for you? I think probably the illustrative thing about Empire or the fact that I worked for Empire and now a contributing editor there, so I'm freelance, but I do regular stuff for them, is that when I first approached them, which would have been 1999, I never got a reply. You know, I asked to go on work experience. I didn't get a response. Um, and so I then tried Total Film, which was the rival magazine, and I got work experience there. Went there, made the tea for a week, got to know a few people, uh, sort of hung around, was nice enough. I mean, honestly, I say this to people when they talk about work experience, what they can, what they can do, and I say, make tea, and people think it's a joke, but it's not really a joke. Because mm. especially on a magazine, and even more so now, everyone's so pushed for time. And everyone's being asked for things all the time. If you go along and, say, and offer something, then immediately they're going to associate you with a positive thing. Hey, this person brings me tea or coffee. Great. <laughs> and then things can develop out. You know, work comes out of relationships, comes out of friendships, um, comes out of just being like, oh, this guy's kind of all right. And out of that, I got slowly uh, freelance work at Total Film. And then I ended up working for a current affairs magazine called Third Way. I'd done a degree in journalism. And I sort of did, would write, like this is back in the day, when I, for, for a few months I was kind of basically unemployed. And I would go to the cinema every day and just watch whatever was on, have one of those monthly passes. So that when Total Films Reviews Editor would phone up and say, hey, have you seen X for a VHS review? I could say yes, and I'd have seen everything. Mm. And because if he phoned me, I could say yes, it meant I got the gig. And it meant not earning very much money for quite a long time, um, but sort of chipped away and got in that way. I mean, this is obviously, you know, 20 years ago now, so I don't know how the, the transferable thing or the relative thing, I think, is, well, don't imagine that just because you can't, 
get in at the market leading magazine or at the top of something, but that means it's the end. It's like everyone has to start somewhere and then you graft away. Mm. And I went eventually from being work experience on Total Film to being editor of Total Film in about six or seven years. Okay, nice. Um, and that was just, I guess, having a goal and then uh, obviously opportunity, luck, and then just working hard, like obsessively, possibly unhealthily. <laughs> Amazing. I remember when I did my first job, it was with a guy called uh, Michael Clifford, uh, who will be interviewing on the show uh, in an upcoming episode. And uh, for the entire, it was just after, it was just at the new year and I start and for the entire new year, all I did was practice making coffees and teas. And that's what I did. And then it turns out when I got there, I was just, I wasn't making any coffees and teas. I was doing all, I was helping out with camera instead. Uh, but that's how I learned how to make a coffee and tea was to try and uh, be a good runner on a on a show. And so incredible to have that uh, kind of joint. It's a good place to start being able to learn how to make coffees and tea. These are important skills. It's why craft mm. services are so important on a film shoot. It's like, mm. where are we going to put the kettle? This is the <laughs> most important thing. Second, where do we put the camera? But first, where do we put the kettle? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> totally. Mm. And so over over your experience of being a journalist with uh, with Empire, uh, you must have had some pretty great assignments and pretty great projects to work on. So what, are, what have been your highlights over this last period of time? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the first, the first big interview I ever did was with Matt Damon when The Born Identity was coming out. So I was working for Total Film and no one really knew anything about this movie. And it's like, oh, should we go see it? And saw a press screening and I thought it was great um, and ended up interviewing him. And he was really charming. Mm. Um, great fun and I very subtly suggested that I needed to get a ticket to his West End play and he went oh well I'll give you one mm. so I then went along and saw his play and then went for a drink afterwards and I thought well oh, this is what being a movie journalist is going to be like movie stars invite you to their plays and then you go for a drink afterwards <laughs> that's that's not what being a film journalist is like <laughs> um, but that was a, a great early highlight mm. um, and that was with Total Film and then through Total Film working there I ended up um, interviewing David Fincher for a retrospective piece about Fight Club. Mm. We had an anniversary issue of the magazine and I'd managed to get myself to LA on a, doing an interview which no, no one else in the magazine was that excited about. Mm. But I thought, oh, if I get to LA, we've got this anniversary edition coming up, there'll be some cool stuff happening. And because I was there, I got to interview Ewan McGregor and David Fincher. Mm. And through yeah. that, because... Um, I'd kind of spent four days in a hotel obsessively watching Fight Club over and over again, which is already pretty much my favourite movie. I think he appreciated the attention to detail. And then I went on set for Zodiac, mm. um, which again was just asking. I just thought I'd give it a shot, I wrote to his assistant. I didn't think in a million years that I would get on set, and I did. And I've been on set for each of his films and TV shows since then. Amazing. Uh, so that's kind of, that's the biggest sort of consistent highlight over the years. Um, and actually, the thing that made me realise I needed to stop just dabbling in filmmaking was I interviewed Jack Nicholson about 10 years ago now. And I was interviewing him about The Shining. And I was at his house. It was a for Empire. Um, sorry. Um, Steven Spielberg was guest editing the issue of the magazine. And I was interviewing Nicholson. Um, and I thought, I mean, one half of your mind is going, it's Jack Nicholson. And the other half desperately trying to think of questions. But at some point I was also thinking, this is it. This is the best thing you're ever going to do. Mm -hmm. 
as a film journalist, you that kind of hobby of occasionally dabbling with scripts needs to become a real thing now. Mm. Um, and that's what gave me the kick to kind of dust out an old script that I'd co-written with somebody and uh, that got me an agent. And that sort of started that phase of uh, career. Amazing, yeah. So kind of moving on from that, Neff, <clears throat> two things crop to mind. One is, it seems to me that um, apart from the hard graft and obviously, you know, you being quite humble, I'd imagine, but you, you obviously had talent at this. You had the ability to capture and to write and ask the right questions and, and, and get things that would be of interest to viewers. So you've, you've got that talent. A couple of things arise out of that. One is that kind of opportunistic thing that has to be around within this industry and getting to know people and then not in a manipulative way, but kind of, I guess, a bit like with the Fincher opportunity, there's a sense in which <clears throat> building some relationships which will actually become quite uh, sort of foundational, if you like, for how you kind of move things forward in your life. And then second, you allude towards the, the kind of seeing that kind of moment in time where you think, actually, I'm not going to be doing anything better than this in as a film journalist. So I want to I want to kind of progress forward to being a filmmaker. So taking those two things, the bit about sort of building relationships, which then become quite foundational to how we all kind of develop what we're doing. And then just to, just allude a little bit more about how the filmmaking then actually started to manifest itself. I think in terms of relationships, I mean, it's one of the things that people say is it's not uh, what you know, it's who you know. And that's kind of used as I think in some ways a little bit of an excuse, um, which isn't to say that I haven't had tremendous opportunities. I have had tremendous opportunities to get to know filmmakers, but I got those opportunities by being good at my job yep. in, the, in the first instance. So someone said to me, this is years ago now, are you not worried people think you're going to exploit your position as a film journalist in your work as a filmmaker? I'm like, well, of course I'm going to exploit my position as a film journalist. How do you think the world works? And you can exploit your position too. All you need to do is become a really prominent film journalist. That's fine. You know, that's point one. Well, it sounds kind of obnoxious, but it is that thing of like, try and take away your excuses, you know. Yeah. Now, the, now the, the flip of that is, I mean, that's with the, the caveat that, you know, I'm middle class, my dad was a cop, my mum was a teacher. I grew up in a, a, a nice, comfortable household. So I'm not diminishing the, the real challenges that lots of people face um, from different backgrounds. And one of the things my parents, probably the thing they gave me the most, which helped the most, was the belief rightly or wrongly, that I could do anything, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is an invaluable thing which not everyone is fortunate enough to have. So I'm not diminishing the idea that people face challenges, but it's just that thing of like, well, um, still not, you know, the, I didn't get to know, like, so Fincher and I have talked about different filmmaking things possibly, and he's looked at scripts and things like that. That's not because the first time I met him, I said, oh, I love you. Will you read my script? Mm. It's because I was good at my job. And then two years later, I interviewed him again. And then 18 months later, I interviewed him again. And I think I finally summoned up the sort of courage to say, oh, I write screenplays on the set of, well, I was in the back of a van on the set of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in Sweden. So that was six years after I met him. Because the point was, I was there to do a job, do your job. You know, I did my job and I did it well. And then over time, you earn the right to talk about other things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, um, 
Yeah, it's not like you, you didn't. You're not trying to basically use somebody as soon as you yeah. need them. Oh, you know, and it's not cynical. Like he's like my favorite filmmaker, and it's odd that he then became you know someone I've interviewed a lot and someone I am yeah. friends with. That's still somewhat surreal, but um, it was never a cynical endeavor, you know. Um, and you're making a the thing I would say about which might be off topic, but you're making a life. You're not just making a career. Mm-hmm. So it's how you spend your time is how you spend your life. Like do the things that you want to do as much as you possibly can. Again, you know, allowing for the fact that we all have to earn a living. Mm. Um, I remember interviewing another filmmaker whose name I won't mention, not because they were a terrible person or whatever, but I was like thinking, Oh, maybe this person is somebody I could, who'd be useful for my career. And we just didn't get on. Mm. It wasn't like, it wasn't like he was unpleasant. It wasn't like we fell out. It's just, we didn't have the same reference points or viewpoint on the world. And it was a perfectly fine, interview i thought well i'm not going to pursue this further because it's just Mm -hmm. it would just be cynical it would just be because this person might be useful for my career and i think you can live like that but ultimately well either you'll get found out Mm. um or the work will get found out you know Mm -hmm. stuff that's done out of cynicism um eventually well doesn't always get found out some people are very successful that way but i don't choose to (laughs) don't choose to live that way yeah does that make sense yeah very much so uh, um, yeah. sorry, sorry. I was just going to ask you another question of uh, where do you think uh, talking about film journalism and in one hand and uh, making your own films in the other hand uh, where and I come so from so I come from this new generation of online content and creating things online and distributing yourself and and just small things on YouTube going to become bigger things um, and so all the kind of news film journalism that I get come from like YouTubers and filmmakers on YouTube who mm. review films and interview people that way. Uh, and then I'm, I'm very grateful for magazines like Empire who then give proper big industry news that I, I read. And so my question is, where is, what, what is the importance of film journalism in this, in our current uh, state of filmmaking? Uh, I know we haven't prepped this question, but I just thought about when asking you is that whole uh, film journalism. How? Where is film journalism going, and how does that? How does how does film journalism benefit filmmakers uh, going forwards? Mm. Well, how it benefits filmmakers, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the whole market, the landscape of things has changed. So there is a lot of, you know, the, I was sort of working for a magazine, a film magazine, or being a film journalist. Is you are the reader's window into a world that they don't actually see. Mm. This is what used to be the case. It's less of the case now, or it's a different type of thing. You know, so if I spend time on set with um, a prominent filmmaker as a kind of film fan from a small town in Devon, then I'm kind of the proxy for the reader. And I'm looking kind of trying to show them what it's like. Um, And I also hopefully bring some level of knowledge and the expertise of having to watch too many movies, you know, so hopefully you're bringing context and analysis and some insights and things which are interesting to people. Mm-hmm. And for the filmmaker's point of view, it means that you, you know, their, their, their material gets publicised and gets publicised to a dedicated audience. Mm-hmm. And for a long lead magazine, that's an audience who will read about it before anyone else and then start talking about it and word of mouth builds on your projects and such mm-hmm. like. Now, of course, that's changed somewhat in terms of the internet. You know, anybody can publish themselves. Um, I think we'll probably end up in a place where Obviously, a lot of magazines have closed and a lot of film websites actually have closed or have not. You know, there was a kind of boom in it 20 years ago and it's now 
it's hard to make money out of it. But I still think if you look at a lot of, you know, any sort of firm of journalism, political journalism, football journalism, film journalism, if, if you want really, really good content, like a really insightful read, then at some point you're going to have to pay for it. Mm, yeah, you know, yeah, that's exactly. the, yeah. um, now you might find that actually you end up with three good websites instead of 20. Mm. Um, or not, I mean, and this isn't to diminish a lot of the stuff that's out there for free. I mean, where the internet's been great is people, this, uh, on one level you can bemoan the fact there's no gatekeepers because it's like, well, what's the quality control? And the other thing is there's not, not so many gatekeepers so people can get out there. Mm. And in a way that, you know, 20 years ago, so if someone's deleted your email, you're not going to get work experience. Mm. Maybe you won't get into that magazine. Now, so, well, okay, someone's deleted my email. I'm going to start blogging. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it'll get attention. I mean, the problem for film journalism is the jobs have shrunk. There's just mm -hmm. a lot less money than there used to be in a lot less roles. So it's something I would hesitate to recommend to anybody diving into. Mm. Um, it's a bit like filmmaking in that regard, though, which is it's hard to end up, hard to get into a position where you can make a living from it. Yeah. So you have to have that in mind when you go into it. Just don't imagine you're going to be the exception rather than the rule. Mm. You know, um, the reason I'm able to devote as much of my time to filmmaking, screenwriting, and plotting various feature films and such, like my wife's a doctor. It's not, it's not like a very inspiring answer, really, and it's slightly embarrassing, but it's like, well, you know, she's got a, she's got a proper job, you know, which is, uh, and believes that I'm not entirely deluded. Well, you know, we'll see how long that lasts for. <laughs> I mean, my, I my question... Pardon? I was going to say, did that answer the question? I'm not sure if it did. It did, yeah. Um, yeah, it was amazing, because I've, I've always loved, loved going on Empire and, like, reading different different articles about the at filmmaking industry and such. Uh, but then I also know the other coin coming from this kind of new wave of information. So it was awesome seeing your perspective on it. So thank you very much for that. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I'd say like with film journalism, the same with filmmaking, it's like there is this, and you see it in social media or just, and obviously Twitter brings out the worst in people, but mm. is this notion that like, um, I don't know, someone, I can't remember, someone, I can't even remember what the argument was about, but someone on social media called me a lovey, which was hilarious, because I think I saw it, I was like in Londis, having having bought myself a nice ham sandwich. Mm. <laughs> I was stood outside Londis waiting for a train, um, just thinking, oh yeah, I'm a lovey. Like there's this idea that there's a whole class of people who are extremely well off or from a particularly comfortable background. And there mm. are there are people in those positions. But a lot of people are just grafting the same as anybody else. It's just they're choosing to graft in that particular area. And the same goes with filmmakers. You know, yeah, there are people who come from money, um, but there's also a lot of people who are just, you know, scraping by. A lot of people who you think are really successful are still scraping by. Mm. So, yeah. you know, please pay for your films. Please mm. pay for your film journalism because we're not living in, ta in you know, grand palaces. Mm. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Uh, so, yeah, Nev. Just building on from that, one of the things I was interested in is when you the transition you've made, and obviously you're still doing journalism stuff, but the kind of the move into being an independent filmmaker. One of the big things I've always kind of gone on about a lot in terms of when you're thinking about making films is obviously being aware of um, you know how how do you find an audience. Um, you know, where do you find that audience? What are audiences looking for? And I just wondered whether, 
having spent so much time and having a career in film journalism and seeing how the industry at a certain level works, um, were you able to glean some really useful things for yourself in terms of knowing how you as a writer particularly and then, and then as a director could, could take some of that information and translate it into projects that hopefully could be successful? In terms of whether they'd have commercial appeal or appeal to a broad audience? Yeah, just, just, just the stuff I guess you would have gleaned out of being within the industry and, and understanding perhaps a little from that about how, how people are you know, trying to make, make projects successful in terms of audience engagement, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think audiences have changed so much or how we get hold of, of films has changed so much and how you stand out. And this is one of the challenges when you're trying to make films or write films or as you're working according to the model, probably instinctively you're working according to the model of what it was like when you grew up and got into films. So when I was getting into films, it's like, hey, Shane Black's sold a film for a million dollars, a screenplay for a million dollars. Oh, wow. And that kind of lingers around in your head so by the time I got to an age where I was going to you know oh, I'm going to try and make films it's like oh I'll write a spec screenplay but the industry has changed and mm -hmm. so all of which is to say I mean that stuff's really hard to predict so you just have to go with the thing which you're going to enjoy doing I know that sounds maybe a little bit simplistic but um if I write something, I've got to know that I'm enjoying writing it and that is an enjoyment and reward in itself. And if I can then sell it, great, or if I can then make it, brilliant. But statistically, the odds are against me or the odds are against us all. Mm -hmm. So you can't become a lottery ticket filmmaker is what I'm talking about. And I see it a lot with people where they imagine they're going to write a screenplay and they're going to sell it and they're going to be delivered or they're going to make the film and they're going to be delivered. It's like, well, don't, don't imagine that you are the exception to the rule. If you make a low-budget film, the probability is you might, you know, if you work really hard, you might get a, a some kind of release. Mm. But the odds of you, you know, don't make your business model be, oh, actually, we're going to become Blair Witch. Mm. You know, don't have your business model going, you know, when we're one of the most 10 most successful independent films of all time, then I'll be able to buy a new house. It's like, it's not going to work out. Um, uh, that said, there are, you know, there are these odd cases, which this, um, we, but it's people have to follow the thing they love. I remember um, I was on a film, writing about a film called Exam about 10 years ago now, uh, written and directed by Stuart Hazeldine. Um, mm. He's a really talented screenwriter and a friend and uh, produced by Gareth Unwin or Gareth Ellis Unwin. And at the time, after he'd wrapped anyway, he said to me, oh, do you want to come down and visit the set? I'm doing this film with Colin Firth. I'm producing it. You should come down. And I thought, Oh, that sounds sweet. Yeah, like if it doesn't, it's something about a king. No, it doesn't really seem my cup of tea, but yeah, that, that's fine, Gareth. You know, and of course, it turned out to be the king's speech. So that's an example of somebody just picking an idea, sticking with the writer. And for, I was like, it doesn't really sound like my cup of tea. And then watched as it became, you know, obviously absolutely enormous. Mm. So there are those moments where you're like, oh, but I don't think Gareth was making that. I can't really speak for him, but I don't imagine he was making it thinking, oh, this is my ticket to a big house and like the Oscars because mm. he believed in it and it happened to find an audience. Mm. I think, I mean, you've got to be, I think, have some degree of sense in terms of going, well, if I'm writing a horror movie where everyone dies, you know, I probably don't want to budget it at $150 million, mm. you know, you got to be sensible in that regard. Like the first screenplay I ever wrote was a Western based on the Iliad, 
incredibly violent, incredibly big, incredibly expensive. Like, that was because I was naive. I enjoyed writing it, and it was the first screenplay I ever finished. Great. It was never going to get made, you know. Um, and so now I do say, I do think, well, what are the possible routes to this getting made? And if I can't see a route, however uh, treacherous the route is, then I don't do it. Because it's, it's your time. And time is the one thing that you control, right? Or the most, mm. Im- the most important thing you have and the thing that you can't get back. So I at least try to have a, a route, even if it's like, uh, yeah, a difficult one and one that, you know, may not be possible. Mm. Again, I don't, I'm not sure that really answers your questions about audience, except for the fact that, you know, William Goldman's right, nobody knows anything. Like the most unlikely films become huge hits. Yeah. And yeah. there's no, and I do think I thought for a long time at some point I'll go through some kind of door mm. and suddenly it will become apparent to me how the industry works. And suddenly these people want to work with me and these people will approach me and, you know, or I'll know some secret and there is no secret. Everyone's just bimbling along, including people who you think are just kind of unbelievably brilliant. They're still bimbling along, you know. Uh, they may have a natural talent which is exceptional, and they may have circumstances which have put them into a good position where they they're somewhat insulated from bad decisions. But everyone makes bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very true. Amazing. Uh, so, what are you working on at the moment? If you can tell us at all, I can tell you in vague terms. <laughs> um, Play charades. Figure it out from charades. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm casting a thriller, uh, which I'll direct as a co-written, which we've, we've cast our leads and now we're looking to get financed. Um, oh, we're talking to different finances and I've co-written a romantic comedy, which I'll produce rather than direct. Nice. Um, and I'm just about to finish, uh, another thriller, which turns out to be a like contained thriller, which was, was something I happens to be something which you could shoot on in a house like with a handful of people so that turns out that that thing which i didn't have any particular plan for other than thinking make it manageable now actually maybe the thing that goes we'll see mm. um and i'm thinking about what to write next in terms of um uh i've got a couple of ideas for horror films actually which i never really thought i would do but uh, they, the ideas keep coming back to me and a comedy drama, there's another sort of comedy drama which I'm attached to direct, which you're out to cast as well. So that's actually a thing which I learned, you know, experience dearly bought. It's for a long time I was pushing one of these projects, which I'm still on. But I just had that one project and I kept on thinking it was going to go and it's still not gone. I mean, it's as close, it's close, super close. <laughs> um, but I then had to start getting other things. And that means you've always got something which you can be pushing forward. And it means if you get a knockback on one thing, then at least you can move on to the other thing. I try and have things at different stages as well, because if you're trying to write screenplays, like rewriting one and starting another is possible. But I mean, everyone does different things, but rewriting two at the same time can get a bit frustrating, a bit tricky. Mm. Um, and also try and be realistic about what's possible. So, you know, my wife's been unwell, so for the last year we spent a lot of time in hospital. So I knew this is not the time for me to be trying to embark on writing a particularly ambitious screenplay. So I put that thriller in a drawer, and then I met another screenwriter who I actually met for him to give me notes on one of my scripts, and in about five minutes in he was telling me how terrible it is. 
And about five minutes later, he started pitching a, a horror film to me. And I was like, part of my brain was like, that was pretty rude. You've met me to give me notes on my script, which you're now telling me is terrible. And you're pitching me another idea. <laughs> and about five minutes later, I was like, man, but this idea is really good. Mm. <laughs> um, so over the last sort of year, he's, he's written that uh, with notes from me. Because that's what I was able to do. I had the capacity to do that. And that's probably the difference, a big difference now from, say, 10 years ago, was being realistic about what you're able to do. Mm -hmm. Looking at the year as a whole and going, right, what can I get done over this period of time? Rather than being overwhelmed by how much you've got to do and how little you can get done in the next week. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, I, you know, probably this period of time in my life, I'm not going to be able to write loads. Okay, well, what else can I do with the intention that I've got? You know, um, breaking up like prosaic things like breaking up, having a like five year idea roughly, and then having a year idea roughly, and then breaking it up into three months. Like, what am I going to try and get done in the next three months? Mm. Um, rather than having these massive, grand, amorphous plans which just kind of oppress you, but you never actually chip away at it. It's just growing up, I guess. You learn the value of like chipping away at things small small steps because that's the only way you complete anything that's that's really good advice actually Nev. really really good advice about the mm. kind of you know set, setting your goals and have making sure that they're realistic set against the backdrop of your own personal circumstances as you you described in terms of what you had but also for people that might be juggling work or other other sorts of things and just you come across that a lot people who just don't quite seem to have a grasp on the realistic nature of what they're actually trying to achieve. So that was, mm. that's really good advice. I mean, you mentioned three, three things there, which really intrigued me. So obviously at heart, you're a writer, but you talked about producing and you talked about directing. So there's three key roles that you're taking on there. How, how do you juggle all of that within your headspace in terms of, because they're all very different things. It's tricky to keep track of things, you know, and I have my various lists and try and everyone, you try and regularly kind of check in on the progress of each thing. Even if you're only checking in on it with yourself, even if it's something which no one else is involved in at that point, it's like sitting back and going, well, what should my next step be on this project? And try and do that every few weeks so that stuff doesn't drift. Um, also recognizing, you know, trying to look at what you are, what you enjoy the most and what you're best at. Uh, and working with your experience of what's happened and how things have worked out rather than this kind of fantasy idea of being the guy who's going to do everything. But I do come up with original ideas for films every once in a while, and this thriller I've just written is an original script, but most things that I... That's not really generally my strength. I'm better at adapting stuff or taking someone else's script and seeing, seeing what the movie is within it. You know, if I could pick one thing to do forever, I would direct. I wouldn't write. And it took me quite a while to figure that out because I've been a journalist. So I thought of myself kind of as a writer, but actually it's just kind of storytelling. So I see, it sounds a bit pretentious, but I see myself, if I see myself as anything, it's the storyteller. Yeah. And I think that directing is where I get the most satisfaction out of doing that. But again, like I've got projects where I've got a, an action film I co-wrote I don't think it's a realistic thing for me to direct. So I'm talking to a different director who may do it, who's already made a successful first feature, is well set for doing it. And that's, I guess that falls under kind of producing to a degree. But producing is just connecting people, really, seeing opportunity and then an awful lot of paperwork. You know, 
yeah. and it's understanding like okay there's certain areas of that which i'm not going to be good at so find someone who is good mm. that you can work with you don't have to be good at everything yeah. it's the thing with directing ultimately directing is not about being bad at anything it's about bringing the best out of other people mm. um i don't know does that answer the question yeah totally yeah, yeah very much so yeah and so uh the final question uh thank you so much for coming along it's been an absolute pleasure uh chatting to you about everything journalism everything filmmaking and just the adventures you've been on uh our last question uh goes directly to uh our audience and the emerging filmmakers uh is uh what lessons have you learned uh over the last few years that you would you would give to young filmmakers and young young film journalists maybe uh who are coming into the sector uh what have you seen changed over the last few years I don't I mean the industry's changed so much in terms of film journalism I don't really know how you get started in film journalism now because I got started 20 years ago um except that I see people who just seem to be so dedicated and know so much you know I think probably it's harder now than it was regardless of platforms it's just the mm. level of knowledge is more than it was you know when mm. I started out um equally the way to access films has changed so much it's a lot easier to be able to become an expert in something, go, oh, well, I'll subscribe to this channel or I can get this on DVD, you know, that's definitely changed a great deal. Um, so I don't know, anyway, that's not very helpful. I don't really know specifics <laughs> in that regard, but he said, so it's more kind of, in general terms, is kind of echoing a couple of things I think I've already said, which is, you know, the most important thing you have to spend is your time. Okay. So try and do it on something that you love. Mm-hmm. Don't try, don't, you know, if you really, uh, I mean, it's good to have, it, as a film journalist, it's good to have a grounding in lots of things. Like I knew because of how I grew up uh, that I, I'd never watched a lot of horror movies as a teenager. So in my early 20s, I thought, well, I kind of need to know about horror movies as a film journalist. So I just watched a lot of horror movies. So I would have a base knowledge that I needed to have. So you can gut, plug your gaps and educate yourself in different things. Mm. That's important. Um, but turning up, like Woody Allen said a quote like years ago, like 80% of success is just showing up. Mm. And that is, sounds like a joke, but in some ways it's true. Like when I was a freelance sub-editor going into the office, I would try to be the first person there and I'd try to be the last person who left. Mm. Um, now, you've also then got to be careful about because that takes a toll on your life. Mm-hmm. You know, a certain like damage I did to my family life uh, in order to become, to fulfill these certain ambitions. And then at some point you wake up and go, well, I fulfilled my ambition, but I've messed up my marriage, you know. Uh, so keep on checking in with yourself, you mm. know, and don't be chasing after this thing and then losing all these amazing things that are around you every day because you're completely obsessed with this one goal. Yeah. Um, as a film journalist, they used to say to people, if they would ask advice, like, hit the word count. Make sure there's no spelling mistakes and get the article in on time. Mm. And that puts you in the top 2% of film journalists. Mm. Because most people don't do that. And like, be reliable. If you can be reliable, then great. If you've been good, good, reliable and quick, fantastic. You could have a career. (laughs) Um, And yeah, you're making a life, you're not making a career. So, Mm. you know, you'll at some point, you know, when I made editor of Total Film, I, it was a big ambition when you kind of sit back and go, oh, what next? 
Um, so just keep on checking your priorities, I guess. Yeah. Don't imagine work's going to deliver you from you, you know. Um, anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to get all very you know, <laughs> highfalutin and pretentious. But, uh, Deeply uh, profound. Yeah, that was awesome. That's great advice. Absolutely. So thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. It's been great having you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. And uh, remember to subscribe to OSPD and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, where, can, where can they follow you uh, if they want to? Uh, I am Nev Pierce on Twitter, which is probably nevpierce.com, which has got my films, my short films, and some of my journalism, some of my feature interviews. So that's probably the best place. Brilliant. Exciting. Fantastic. Uh, thanks so, a lot, Nev. Thanks a lot, Nev. See you all oh, next please. time. Remember to subscribe, ring the bell, and everything else. See you soon.